And I pray, you know, as the as the uh, as the as the day approaches, the matter of some is and departing the faith and looking to the world for comfort and pleasure and glamour and glitter. Uh, let it be known to the house of God that we are a vineyard um, where we are keepers and uh, we're keepers of the vineyard and we pray that we may enjoy the fruit, the spiritual fruit that God provides His people while in this world. And in that sense, we are enjoying the fellowship and the vital union that we have with Christ. Um, When we come to church, Paul speaks of it as the Jerusalem which is above, the mother of us all. It's above the world. In the world you shall have tribulation. The world is a place that is uh, hostile toward the Lord Jesus. He said, the world hated me, it's going to hate you. Don't be surprised, don't be shocked. So come out from among them and be separate. Uh, which doesn't mean in a physical sense, we're in the world, we rub shoulders with just about everyone, every walk of life, everybody out there, and we're friendly and caring and concerned for others. But we're not to be partakers of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We're not to be like other men most miserable, which have no hope. We're to be exuberant children of God that are feasting on the vine, the vineyard, enjoying the fruit of the vineyard. Ecstatic, intense, exuberance, vigor in the things of God. That's where we want to be, and that's our aim. Now, last week we opened up before you the book of the Song of Solomon, a beautiful, poetic, figurative parable to the love that Christ has for His people And in turn, his people have for him. And this book is found directly in front, as we made note. We opened up last week for Brother Bloyd. You remember he preached from us about, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And that's what we hope to do. Follow our pastor's lead this morning to glory in Christ. Notice with me in the Song of Solomon. Now it is difficult to find, but if you can find the book of Isaiah... Go back one book. It's right before the book of Isaiah. Now, last week we opened up with the 8th chapter in verse 12, which says, My vineyard, which is mine, is before me. And that's a central theme that is carried out throughout this book. We made note to the fact that in times when we read this book, it's difficult to tell just who's speaking. Because it's a love story between these two, and often there are others that are interjecting themselves but primarily between the bride and the bridegroom. The Lord Jesus is the bridegroom. The church, she is his bride. Uh, Often and referred to as, uh, in a figurative way, uh, the the Solomon and the Shulamite. This uh, couple that are intensely in love with one another. Now we made note last week... You know, especially in this day of self-absorption, I don't want to pick any, I don't want to pick any, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, be critical of people that use this particular book in a different manner in which it, I feel, is designed. Uh, but if you can preach a whole hour on the Song of Solomon and not mention the love of Christ or the love 
that we have for him, uh, we're far removed from the intent of the Holy Spirit. This is a book about a love story. A love story. And it's a beautiful uh, setting in which we find ourselves. This uh, back and forth uh, singing to each other in beautiful language that is very illustrious to say the least. Very figurative, very powerful. It's certainly... Um, now, just getting back to this idea of setting it as a marital manual in a practical way, as I've said, you can draw principles from it. This is okay. But if it's the primary focus, a lot of you younger women and older women, a lot of you younger men and older men will be disappointed because, dear sisters, uh, Mr. Atlas that you married sooner or later, will be someone a little bit different than you first expected him to be. Or the beauty of a young woman in the eyes of her husband uh, soon fades as the leaf and withers. And we need to be mindful of the fact that our hope doesn't rest in the strength of a man or the beauty of a woman. In other words, we don't set up marriage as an idol and expect something of it that it's not designed to be. Marriage is made for earth. It's not made for heaven. This book is about a marriage made in heaven. And it's a beautiful marriage. It speaks of love, an everlasting love, an enduring love. Isn't love so beautiful? We, uh, we sang this morning of love, our love to the Lord. It is most sweet. Well, turn with me in the fifth chapter of the song when we read this verse. His mouth is most his mouth is most sweet. Yea, he is altogether lovely. Now she's speaking, it's obvious. She says, This is my beloved, this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I want you to notice that he is altogether lovely. You know, I'm thankful that all of us have a part in working in the vineyard of the Lord. This is my vineyard, she said. But he could also say it himself. This is my vineyard. I purchased the vineyard. Well, in the vineyard, all of us play a a particular role. And it's not uh, anyone's particular aim to be set up on a pedestal and be appreciated above anyone else. We're all on equal footing. Uh, In the kingdom of Christ, there's neither male nor female. We're all one in him. We play different roles, obviously. We have different genders, obviously. But in terms of our spiritual uh, brotherhood, we are all one in Christ. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. And none of us, we're all working together. We're, We're keepers of the vineyard. We dress the vineyard. And we partake of the vineyard together. But none of us are any special or anything beyond anyone else who maketh thee to differ. Our sufficiency is of God. Uh, When I give way uh, to all the earth by the grace of God, another one will come up and speak of the glorious love that Christ has for His church. And I can assure you that to be the case. And He's done so now for thousands of years. It's been a recurring theme, theme among God's people that He... And he alone is altogether lovely. Now, there's no doubt that this book is a mature book. It's a book for the adult, mature, spiritual believer. And if you're there, I thank God for you. Never take it for granted because it's a day-by-day thing where we constantly work 
at maintaining our spirituality by prayer, by reading, by studying, by enveloping ourselves into the Word of God, meditating upon the Word. You know, when you read the Bible, you just don't read it mechanically. But we read it to hear the voice of the Lord. Yes, we do. I think it was Martin Luther who said, if a man would hear God speak, let him read the Scriptures. And if you want to hear the Lord speak, you read the Scriptures. You know, oftentimes we have a lot of opinions. You know, well, God says this and God says that. And everybody has an opinion, don't they? Well, but what saith the Lord? Have you read your Bible? The same person who's got a lot of opinions about what the Lord has said, I wonder how much they've read the Bible. Where did they get that opinion? Did it just come out of their head? Is it something they heard on the television? They hear it on the radio, some popular uh, talk show host? Or did they get it directly from a thus saith the Lord? was a time when I really took, it to, took the Bible and I didn't like the red letter editions. But you know what I have today? I have a red letter edition. And I gotten fond of it, quite frankly. Because when I see the red letters, I see in particular that Jesus is speaking. And I pay particular attention. Now I know that all the Word of God is God's Word. Every bit of it. Every jot and tittle of it, if you will. But the, the words in red have a special flavor. Just like this word here, when we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is altogether lovely. You know, we don't part and parcel the Lord. We don't cut and divide Him up into pieces in which we prefer. I prefer this part over the other. I've met people. I've met people that tore out pages of the Bible because they just didn't like it. God can't use that Romans chapter 9. And certainly can't use... People can't uh, read that kind of thing and be invited to the church. Why, they'll run. Well, I can't guarantee the fact that you won't run in light of the truth, but uh, the Bible is the Bible, and the Bible has a lot of good things to say and a lot of hard things to say. It speaks not only about the love of God in Christ and how He shed His blood for His people, but also, in particular, how He loved some and hated others. We can read about that in Romans chapter 9. Shall the thing formed say unto him that formed it? We are the thing. And the translators gave us a little bit of grace by adding it to include us. That's who we are. But God is mentioned in the personal pronoun, him. Shall the thing formed say unto him that formed it, what doest thou? Who are we? Who are we but as the leaf, the flower of the field that is here for a while and fadeth away? You know, there is a glory of the grass. It's beautiful. There is a glory of the flower. It rises, it buds, it bears its beautiful um, rose or beautiful flower. But it's here for just a while and it's gone. It's like the grass that is withered. It has a glory, but it's short-lived. It's short-lived, very short-lived. But God has a glory. His words have a glory. They speak what? Life, Oh, what glory they ha uh, we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I say, when we go back to the 8th chapter and we read the vineyard, which is mine, she says, is before me. She is setting forth these wonderful truths before her, that she may lavish herself upon them and delight herself in them. These are spiritual truths. This is a spiritual house. And the words of the Lord will 
refresh your souls deep in your inmost heart and bring you up above the sadness. You know, we've heard about the sadness of our sister who was in great need. And we plead for God on her behalf that he would give her strength in the inner man to go on. We know these things are very difficult, especially as we get older and uh, we have special particular needs that only the Lord can meet. And so we're on our knee and we pray. We pray that the Lord would, be, uh, would send his sweet presence to her and strengthen her so that while the body perishes, the outward man perishes, the inward man is renewed day by day by the Spirit of the Lord God in the inner heart, in the soul. And so we set before you this great Lord Jesus Christ who is altogether lovely. In 1 John 4, in verse 8, the Scripture says that God is love. He that loveth not is not of God. Neither knoweth God. Isn't that interesting? He sets forth in light of the love of God the negative aspect of the love. Not everyone loves God, do they? Not everyone knows God. Why would he say such a thing? Because the love of God is not universal. It is particular. It's definite. The love of God, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. It is to the glory of a king to conceal a matter. You know, you and I, we think much different. It's got to be on the billboard. It's got to be in lights. It's got to be read by everybody. We're the Facebook generation. There's no doubt about it. We want to be seen and we want to be heard. But God doesn't operate that way. God is glorified when we enter the closet and we close the door and we bow our knee and we pray unto him. Nobody else knows what's going on. Even when we give with our left hand, our right hand shouldn't know the matter. What we do in the kingdom of God is, in a sense, a mystery. It's enveloped in secrecy, if you will. If you will. It's not that we don't share. We love to share. We do share. We're an open book. We speak. We preach. We warn every man in Christ Jesus of the things concerned concerning the, the truth of God. We, we don't hold back. We preach on the housetops, the Lord said. Preach it on the housetops. Because it's the time world in which all men, all men are responsible for the truth of God. We don't hold back. Uh, only God knows the hearts of people. And we don't know who elect are or who are not. We preach the word. We don't show favoritism. We are no respecter of persons. We preach the truth regardless of how it's received or how it's... How, how unreceived it may be. Because the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is altogether lovely. It's her vineyard, is it not? And this vineyard in which you have is a possession that God grants you. Um, it's not your church in the sense that you own it. It's not your possession. It's His certainly, but He's lent it out to you. Uh, he has forwarded it to you. And it's your... You're to be responsible as good custodians of what belongs to him. You're to invest in the kingdom. You're supposed to work in the kingdom. As we heard already how one of our members can assist and help and share uh, in, in, the, in the gifts that she has toward others. This is all part of what we're doing in dressing the vineyard and glorifying God by helping others. And this is remarkable because it's something that we feel strongly about. Many of you have... Uh, uh, been in this church for decades, through thick and thin. Some of you outlasted 
a pulpit where no pastor stood for years because you were dedicated. This place was a place that, that had a spiritual root that took place in your heart. You're not easily ready to let it go and fly away from those roots. You are bound in a strong spiritual sense to this vineyard which God has given you. You've got a lot of memories here. You join the church here. You remember being impressed by the Spirit of God and you presented yourself and you uh, presented yourself before the church and you, and, and you confess that Lord Jesus is the Christ of God, that, it, it, that His name is to be honored above every name and that your knees should bow before Him. And you presented yourself in that way as a member to the church and you came in. And as the brother mentioned that is a place of green pastures and you came and you fed and this is important to you and you've endured, you've outlasted through thick and thin and so it belongs to you, it means something to you in a sense it's an inheritance that's been given to you, this vineyard I, 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 I understand that a good product from the vine is a product that's been around a while at least 20-some years before a good vine will produce a good fruit in order to make a good wine. Some vineyards uh, have lasted hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, they're in England and they're in Turkey and uh, some in America that have lasted a long time. And they're so long-lasting that they've got to make sure that they're willed, you know, in the will. You know, in other words, uh, make sure the family keeps it in the family, you know, the, the vineyard. So that they can produce grapes long uh, uh, provided for. And so we can see that. In the Bible, there's a vineyard that I often refer to or read. And that's a vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. You remember Naboth. He was a Hebrew, but he lived in Jezreel. He was a Jezreelite. And he received a vineyard from his own family. It was in his family. But unfortunately, you know, where his vineyard was was right next to the house of the king Ahab. And Ahab was a king of Israel. He was of the northern tribe. You know, every king in the northern tribe was evil. That's what the scripture says. There were kings of the north during the divided kingdom, and there was kings to the south in Judah. Now, at this particular time, old Ahab was married to Jezebel. You remember Jezebel. Old Jezebel, she really was running things. Well, anyway, Naboth had this vineyard, and Ahab went to Naboth and said, I want your vineyard. And he said, what? This vineyard's been given to me by my, by my ancestry. It's my inheritance. How can I just give it to you? So Ahab went on home and pouted, didn't eat any food, and jumped in bed and was depressed. And old Jezebel came, are you what? You're the king of Israel, and you're sitting here pouting? Get on out the door. Get up and eat bread. I'll take care of old Naboth. And surely he, she did. Surely she did. That good man was... Well, anyway, what happened was old Jezebel, she set him up in court. That's what it was. Kangaroo court, in a sense. And she had two sons, this is what the scripture says, of Belial that came to testify and bear false witness against old good Naboth. He was a good man. And he kept the vineyard. She was an evil woman. And he, Ahab, was an evil king. And they lied about old Naboth, those two. You know, you can get anybody to tell a lie. Lies are cheap. They're easy. You can spread a lie almost just as quick as a drop of a hat. An old lie will go around the world. 
before it boots, the truth gets a chance to put his boots on. Is that the saying? That's how slow it is. Truth, is. truth is always just coming up the rear. It's always lagging behind. Lies are much quicker. And so we need to be careful about that. But anyway, uh, old Jezebel, she had that poor man stoned to death. And Ahab got his vineyard. But not outside the judgment of Almighty God. See, God, he has eyes and he could see what was going on. He knows what's going on. And you can't do things like that. So the point was that that was his vineyard. He received it of the Lord. It was an inheritance. And he protected it. And it was precious to him. And the same thing is the church of God. We have our blood, sweat, and tears in this house. We love the house of God. And we're concerned about the house of God. And we'll do whatever it takes to follow the Lord as He Himself is the head of the church, altogether lovely, and He is the one who has given it. Well, this love that we speak of, God is love, and He loves us, and we love Him, is a love that is eternal. The Scripture speaks of a love that goes way back before the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Way back before the creation of this world, God loved us. Can you figure that out? Can you define that? How am I going to, in 30, 40, or 50 minutes, talk to you about something that is so immeasurable, that started somewhere in eternity past? How can I describe it in 30, or 40, or 50 minutes? Can you do that? How many of you have ever been to the ocean? The ocean, how wide and broad immeasurable is the ocean. Now, the next time you go to Ocean City or wherever your favorite spot is, I want you to take a thimble with you. And I want you to run on down to the edge of the ocean and I want you to see how much water you can catch in that thimble. That's about how much we can catch love right now. That love is eternal. The scripture, the old prophet Jeremiah said, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness. Have I drawn thee? That love was also there in creation. Don't you think it was there in creation when God created the world? You know He made man last. Man and woman. You know why? They're made in the image of God. Because it was the very crowning glory or the achievement of His creation. He loved His creation. He looked upon it and said it was very good. And when He made man, He made man to dress the creation. He put him in his garden. There it is, another garden, the Garden of Eden. And man tilled and worked the garden with God. God worked with him. And then, on top of that, to provide for Adam, this sole federal head of the whole human race, he provided for him a helpmeet, someone to there work with him, beside him, having been taken from the very rib. And... Uh, But bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, there she was, beautiful, and Adam loved her. And those two became one flesh. What a beautiful picture of uh, the institution of marriage there. And so God loved them. But God loved them in spite of the fact that they fell. Oh, yes, they ate the forbidden fruit. God said, don't you eat of the fruit of the tree of of knowledge of good and evil. Don't you do that, lest ye die. And what happened? Oh, Eve, she partook, didn't she? I remember in the Scriptures when the Lord came to Eve, He said, What is this? 
that thou hast done. What have you done? You've marred creation. You've defaced what I love. What I called good, you destroyed. You've brought sorrow and now the curse is upon this earth. The curse bears. The curse bears the fruit of judgment of God. That's why there's sorrow and sadness and death is nipping at everybody's heels. We're born to die. Every day we look in the mirror and we see one more wrinkle because our time is determined. It's appointed unto men once to die. And so we realize this sad fact, this reality, which we cannot escape. We're of the earth earthy, and we don't want to die, but we do die, and it's a sad reality. But God loved us. He loved us. He loved us. And He made provision for us. He said, I've loved thee with an everlasting love. And therefore, I've made provision for you. I've taken care of the things you couldn't do for yourself. You've marred it. But that love that starts out in eternity, and that love that was a creation, and that love that, excuse me, that was with us when we fell in Adam. Do you know what she says of herself? Oh, my mother's children, verse 6 of chapter 1. Oh, my mother's children. This is the Shulamite speaking. They were angry with me. They were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. That's figurative language to show the fact that she was cast out of the garden. She was cast out. And you remember the Lord put a a cherubim there at the entrance so that man in his fallen estate would not re-enter the garden and take part of the tree of life whereby he would stay in his abandoned state, his alienated state forever. God provided mercy with a flaming sword at the edge of that garden to prevent a man falling into an eternal death. He provided life for us, fallen sons of humanity. And so that was our love described in a wonderful thing. But it doesn't end there, does it? Love doesn't end here in this time world. It goes on. Faith, right, will cease, right? But charity, what happens, lives on. Charity abideth forever and ever. We know in part right now, but then we shall see face to face. We live in this part-time world. We don't see all of it. That's why we're partakers of glory divine. What awaits us is so great. It's love in its fullness. It's love in its immeasurable quality and quantity, if I may. How long is life eternal? And so we measure that love according to the person and the work of the Lord. He's the plumb line. He's the standard by which we measure the love. Outside of Christ, it's going to be difficult for you. I know we mentioned creation and all these beautiful things. You really can't look at the stars. You can be oohed and awed at the stars. But you can't capture the love that God has for His people outside the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, in this great book, He's described. Now, She's described by him in the previous chapter. And in this fifth chapter, I'll begin with a verse previous to that. 
Uh, he describes, or she is going to describe him, but not before she wanders off from his presence. You see, there's this tug of war, this not love-hate, but this tug of war between the love couple here in this beautiful book. You know, he presents himself to her, and what happens? She falls asleep, and she wakes up and wonders what happened. Watch what she says, first of all, in verse 16. Um, Awake, O north wind, and come, thou south, blow upon my garden. Let the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. And she's talking about this wonderful fellowship that she has as she awaits. She awaits. Awake, O north wind. And come and blow south, blow upon the garden. May I be enlivened by the fresh spices there. I come into my garden, verse 1, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk in my wine and my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. So this is him talking. And so we have this back and forth uh, sharing. First she invites him to the garden, and now he's come. But notice what she's doing. Verse 2, chapter 5. I sleep, my heart waketh, and it's the voice of my beloved. He's knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove. The church is pictured as a turtle dove. A dove, undefiled. For my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I put off my coat, she said. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. My sandals are off. I'm laying down. I know that you're passing by. But how shall I defile my feet now? My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door. So she sees his hand by the lock mechanism of that door. My bowels were moved for him. She longs for him. She sees the hand of her beloved. I rose up to open to my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh. What happened? My fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock, and I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn. He was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And then she goes out, and the watchmen that were went about the city, they found her. They smote her, she said. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. She was laid bare, in a sense. In other words, they they reproved her for what she had done. She delayed. He's sensitive. Love is sensitive. Love is so precious that you need not startle it. And this is exactly what took place. In her delay... In the fact that she wouldn't get up. She hurt the sensitivity of the love of her beloved. And he withdrew himself. And the watchmen now were spanking her. Reprimanding her. I charge you here in verse 8. O daughters of Jerusalem. If ye find my beloved. Now she's speaking. That ye tell him that I am sick of love. She's sick because she feels an ache in her soul for the Lord Jesus Have you ever been to a place in your life 
in your spiritual journey when you felt outside the bounds of the love of Christ? Oh, I don't know. You may have slipped up. You may have done wrong. But you felt that you with the Lord withdrew himself from you, from that, that powerful presence that you once knew. At one, at one point in your life, you remember being in such love with the Savior that you fellowshiped with Him and you talked with Him. He spake to you in the early morning and even through the night, you had great a company with your Savior. But because of sin and the hardness of heart, the longness of the journey, you got off the beaten path, the rocks were hard on a straight and narrow way, and you went off into the plush meadow. But soon night fell and you were lost You couldn't find your way and you were in a terrible strait and you longed for recovery. You repented of your sin and you found again you were restored. The joy of God's salvation restored to you once again. But those times are powerful as they they remind you of the sensitivity of the fellowship of the love of Christ. What is my beloved, she said. Wait, wait a minute. They're speaking. The daughters of Jerusalem now are speaking in verse 9 of chapter 5. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? Oh, wait a minute. They're saying, these daughters of Jerusalem, there's plenty others to choose from. What is your beloved more than any other one? O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another? And this is what we refer to as the particular love of God. God loves you. This thing is personal. You know, I know we're in a corporate body right now. We're a collective body. We're all in the vineyard and we're sharing one another's faith. And we need one another. But it's an individual thing. Sooner or later, you go out that door and it's you in the world. And you must know that your beloved is with you. And another one will not suffice. You've fallen in love with him. And he's fallen in love with you. And that precious union cannot be spoiled. There won't be another that takes his place. And all the doctrines of the world, no matter how fabulous they may appear, they may have a great speaker, they may have a great eloquence, they might have the theater, thousands of dollars and all kinds of apparatus. But give me Christ and have none else. I will glory in the Lord and him alone. He is my beloved. I don't want the fake Christ, the nay and the yea gospels. I want the amen, the true and the amen, which is Christ the Lord. I want the Lord Jesus Christ set before me in all his beauty because he is altogether lovely. There's no part of him that I despise. He is altogether lovely. From eternity past to eternity future, he is altogether lovely. Now... She sets out to describe him. What is it that your beloved is so fair among the thousands? Well, let me tell you, she said. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. And this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in in his sinless perfection. God manifest in the flesh. Very God of very God. That's the way the theologians say it. That he is fully God. When you looked in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember Philip said, show us the Father. That will be sufficient. That's all we need. Philip, now, we're the night the Lord Jesus is about to be betrayed. It's the last hours that he's spending with his disciples, and Philip's asking the question, show us the Father. 
I've been with you all these years. You haven't seen the Father. The Father and I are one. When you see me, you see the Father. So when we see Jesus, we see the full expression, the fullness of the Godhead in a bodily form. So when you visualize Jesus, when you read the gospel narratives, you're seeing the manifestation of God in human form. So he's divine. That's what the reference to is white. And also he's of uh, human origin in a sense. Well, let me say it properly now. He was born of a virgin. And though he was absolutely God, he was fully man. And this picture here of Ruddy points to that. Now, we're not talking about, most likely, I don't think we're talking about a rosy red cheek that's fair. I'm thinking more like a red heifer. You ever seen a red heifer? You ever seen different colors of red? You got some color reds out there, hats, ties. There's different colors. There's different degrees. There's burgundy. There's sangria. You know, I'm talking wine now. There's rosé, a little lighter. But I believe this color here is a picture of clay, a picture of red earth. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was fully man. He had emotions. He hurt. He thirsted. Now, he was sinless. And I don't think because of that he... He, he, he was subject to certain things that you and I were, but yet he was tempted in all points such as we are. I can't fully understand it. But he was drawn to sin, yet didn't sin. You understand? Now the world will define the Lord Jesus Christ as one who did in fact sin. And he was just a sinner. And they convey that in a variety of ways, whether a movie or a book or somebody, some philosopher somewhere, that read the Bible. You know, there's a lot of things that get outside the Bible. Philosophy is one of them, not principle. But anyway, Jesus is divine, and also he's a man, fully man. He's both white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. Now, notice also he said in 11, as she describes, he, she is saying, his head, she's describing the Lord Jesus, who's altogether lovely for us, his head is of the most fine gold. Now that, again, is a reiteration of the divinity of the Lord. He's pure. Gold is without dross. Purified. Purified gold. Not the kind of gold that you get out of the ground that you got to clean and you got to heat up under the temperature and remove the dross. No. Purified gold. Pure gold. As clear as crystal. Gold. How precious, divine, eternal gold. And his locks are bushy and black as a raven. Isn't that beautiful? Bushy, curly, curly locks. The Lord. What's it picturing? It's, he's, he's, uh, he's gold. He's divine. He's the ancient of days. And yet he's youthful, full of strength, beautiful to look upon. Can you see his hair full of dark, curly locks. How beautiful a picture it is. Now, he's not bald-headed. He's not gray-headed, is he? Those of us who are short on hair and those of you who are gray, turning white, what's that picture? It pictures your age, but it pictures something else. It pictures decay, deterioration, I'm sad to say. But in Jesus, there's no decay, there's no deterioration, 
There's no lack of strength. He's altogether lovely. He's beautiful. Gaze upon him for a while as we look upon him. Black as a raven. I like that word, raven, because a raven is a bird. You is a bird that will go into the, the nastiest place to get food and nourishment and provision. That bird is uh, fearless, that old raven. I'm glad to see our football team is named after the raven because it's a picture of strength and a picture of, a, of a fervency and vigor in this raven. And so the Lord Jesus Christ will go anywhere to find his people. He seeks and saves that which is what? Lost. He will go anywhere to retrieve his people. There was a woman. She was taken in the very act of adultery. But there Jesus was. You know what he said to her? After he rode on the ground and he pricked the conscience of the religious and the pious. He turned to her and he said, Woman, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus finds, he's a friend of sinners. He loves his people. Now, he doesn't love them in sin. He told that woman, you go and you sin no more. Oh, no. No, sin is not a light thing with the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. No. No. He despises sin. It is sin, the reason for which he suffered anguish on the cruel tree and was uh, separated, alienated from the Father in which he loved and was endeared to for all eternity. And now uh, he doesn't in any way rationalize or wink at it. Uh, God is as serious about sin as he ever was. It is true that men are appointed unto death. And after this, the Bible says, judgment, because sin will be answered for, either in my beloved at the cross, my substitute who took upon my sin in his own body on the tree, or I must answer for it and, yet, and say, Amen, true and righteous are thy judgments, if I must pay the ultimate price. But my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is found in him who is altogether lovely. Well, he has a bushy and black hair as a raven, curly, Beautiful to look upon. I think it's very simple. I don't think you have to look so far into this language, you know, for some hidden meaning. I think it's beautiful. It's right there on the surface. He's sharing it in ways in which we can understand. His eyes, he goes on in verse 12. She goes on in verse 12. His eyes are as the eyes of doves. Now here he's had a hair like raven, now eyes like doves. And that's a picture of the softness, the gentleness, the sensitivity Of the love of God. A dove will not go into the muddy waters for food. The dove will travel a long distance to find nourishment, unlike the raven. And so the dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit. You remember when the Lord was baptized, that the Spirit descended upon the Lord when he came out of the water like a dove. How beautiful a picture that is. The eyes, though, it says, the eyes are the eyes of of doves. And so the Lord Jesus Christ has eyes, a penetrating eye, an all-seeing eye. The eye, you know, it was no mistake that Noah sent out a dove to see if the dove with her eyes could see any uh, growth, vegetation. 
Right? Because she has eyes. She has piercing eyes. She can see afar off. And the Lord Jesus Christ can see from heaven. And he sees the very marrow. He can divide the very marrow from the soul. He knows the inner heart. He sees deep into the recesses. And so that's the eyes of the Lord. The eyes in the Bible are a picture of the Spirit of God. And you remember that the throne is surrounded by wheels. The wheels in Ezekiel 1. And the wheels were all surrounded with these eyes all around the wheels. And they were looking every which way they could see. This is the eyes, the seven spirits of God. We've mentioned that. The eyes of Brother uh, on not long ago, Brother Michael. The eyes of doves by the rivers of waters. That's a beautiful picture. So now we have the eyes of doves by the rivers of water. And of course, we just preached not long ago on the rivers of water that flown, that flown from the throne of God, from beneath His throne and out from the temple in Ezekiel's vision. And it got deeper and deeper and deeper, enough so that they were swimming in the waters. At first it was at the ankle depth, and then it moved deeper as it went further out. And it was a picture of the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. It started out with just a mere fisherman on the seashore of Galilee. And then he said to them, and he gave them commission, you go, you go unto Jerusalem, you go to Samaria, you go to the uttermost parts of the earth, and you preach the gospel of God's redeeming grace. And they went out, and now Christianity has spread throughout the whole world. And God is glorified in it. That God is glorified in that beautiful picture. But the rivers of water are beautiful, beautiful. You know, I'm reading ancient Hebrew lately. You know, you could be a third grader and read ancient Hebrew. You know why? It's symbols. You don't have to have a degree to figure it out. You can just look at the symbols. Well, I'm reading this ancient Hebrew. And one of the symbols for water is this jagged top with a soft curve. And they used it for both the flood and the torrent, the turbulent waters like the Colorado River. And they also used it as a sweet, gentle, still waters, like pictured in the Lord, uh, the, shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalms 23. And it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he has eyes like a dove, it doesn't mean that he does, he's not the judge. He's a righteous judge. And he can see, you know, he, there's no, you can't pay him off. You can't bribe the judge of all the earth. You can't sneak past the judge and show favoritism in any way, shape, or form. He's a righteous judge. Isn't that a refreshing thought in our day and age in which we live where people do underhanded things in order to get favor from judges and people that are victims don't have a true resource or advocate? Thank God that we have a judge who will do righteous. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that one. And he's pictured as one who's by the rivers of water. His judgments are true. His judgments are right. There's no fluctuation. There's no bending of the law. He says this is the law and this is the way it is. Because he's a righteous judge. But he's also gentle. You know, you might think that God is only a judge as he was at Mount Sinai. And there he was speaking to Moses. And all the people at the bottom of the mountain were in fear of their life because they saw the smoke and the lightnings and the flashings and the thunderings. Fear struck them. And if they touched the side of the mountain, even any beast, they would be dead. And so there's something to think about, the awesome nature 
of our holy God. But in Christ, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, He takes it away. And we as sinners, by God's grace, are welcomed so that we not shy away from the fierceness of God Almighty. We are welcomed into the arms, the loving arms, the everlasting arms of our Savior. Well, then he says, it says there, the eyes of a dove by the rivers of waters are washed with milk. <laughs> washed with milk. Milk is sweet. You know, when they talked about the new land, the promised land, they mentioned milk and honey. And it was a nice thing because milk is sweet. It's white. It's precious. Pure. And it was enjoyable. What a precious thing to think about. Because when we, when, when we, when we uh, as keepers of the vineyard, when we partake of God's glory, we are refurbished. We, our souls are enriched. We drink of the spiritual food. I tell you, that's a beautiful thought when he, in John chapter 6, spoke of himself as the bread of heaven. It's the provision God has given each one of us. Be careful about the frustrations of this world. You know, we watch TV so much that it becomes our greater influence. And we're succumbed by the philosophy of the world. And we're just, it's like a knockdown, drag out fight. It's like we're in the boxing match and we get bruised and mangled and we walk away from it thinking we're a child of God and we wonder, you know, how is it that God allows terrible things in this world to happen? Well, already we're bent by the philosophy of the world. We're already affected, if you will, by the world and his philosophies. Keep your focus on the Lord. He's altogether lovely. Watch the idols of the age, the philosophical idols. I'm not talking about stone and wood. I'm talking about ideals. I'm talking about things that lay contrary to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful, on guard. Be washed with the milk of the Holy Ghost, if you will. Notice it said, fitly set. Fitly set. I like that. Very simple. It's a setting in its fullness. That's what the center column says right there in the center. It's fitted perfectly. In other words, the eyes of the Lord aren't like sunken sockets. The eyes of the Lord, when you and if you could see them, if you could visualize them, are beautiful. They're on display. They're bright. They're glorious. They're fitly set, washed with the milk. His cheeks, verse 13, are as a bed of spices. So she continues on in this description of her beloved, that one who is fairer than all others, that one who stands prominent within her view, that one in whom is set forth before her eyes. She said of him that his cheeks are as a bed of spices. Now, what could the cheeks possibly refer to? In the Bible, the cheeks refer to the face. The face. May the face of the countenance of the Lord shine upon you, said the David in the Psalms. Let the face of the Lord be your countenance. The face of God be your face. The cheeks of the Lord are powerful in that they present before us a lovely image, a captivating image. Fullness, healthy. You know, a doctor can look at you, can tell you just by looking at you whether you're healthy. But when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ and all the beauty that the Bible gives, He's healthy. 
He's not in any way sick or afflicted. We're the ones that are sick. I say that because I got my mind on the lips further down. And I'll get there in a minute. The cheeks are as a bed of spices. What did he do with his cheek? The Bible says that he gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that pluck out the hair. He was not, he did not hide himself from the smiters. He gave himself, he voluntarily submitted those beautiful cheeks to the smiters. And they smote him. And he did this for you. If you want to know where the love of God is, you see love at the cross where the Lord gave himself an offering for sin, where he poured out his soul unto death. That's where 1 John 4 and 8 is nested very sweetly within the context of Jesus being set forth as the propitiation of our sin. In other words, that big fancy theological word is very simple. God's wrath was appeased. It was assuaged. God's wrath was satisfied. That's all that word means. It's a beautiful word. It's not difficult. I know a lot of you guys deal in gigabytes and megabytes and computers. And I know this is not some, some language that is above your head. We have a lot of reason today when we listen to others to retreat from the Bible words. But Bible words convey truths. And these truths are most excellent. And his cheeks are his bed. Notice this, a bed of spices. And so we see this beautiful picture of this abundancy. You know, when we think about the life that God gives, we think about the abundant life that he gives. One of the things that was remarkable to me when I first came to the church, this was years ago, was all these guys and these, these families I was meeting. You know, here I was, you know, just withered by the wilderness of the world. And I came in contact with people who had them, their lives together. They were fully functional members of the civil society, working, walking, talking, living life to the fullest. It didn't matter how much they had or how little they had. It was insignificant. But what I got from them is they were well-kept the abundant life that the Lord promises each and every one of us is a life of happiness, a life of joy, a life rewarding, a life fulfilling. That's what he refers to. I give unto them abundant life. His grace is abundant. If you need more, he gives you more. He abounds in grace and graces to us. There's no end to the faith that he will give you. To the spirit he will give to anyone he, that asks him for uh, Holy Ghost. That's what he said in Luke chapter 11. Well, his cheeks are as a bed of spices, inviting, and, and as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies. You get the picture here? Dropping, sweet-smelling myrrh. Sweet flowers. Notice in the center column reference, verse 13, towers of perfumes. You know how they got this myrrh? We're about ready to close just in a few minutes. They got this myrrh from, it's a beautiful perfume. They use it for burial, but they use it for all kinds of things. And anyway, they got, they, they, there was a certain tree that grows in the east they cut. And out of it came this sweet-smelling perfume. But it tasted horrible. 
Don't you try to drink it. Very bitter to the taste. The Lord Jesus Christ, while He was on the cross, they offered Him wine, according to Mark's account, mingled with myrrh, and He would not. He would not drink of it. Not only because it was bitter, but the bitterness that He was drinking there on the cross was something He would share with no other. He drank the full dregs of the bitterness of the wrath of God for you. He did not go and look to another. He didn't drink wine to alleviate his sufferings one iota. Man, maybe you could have had a bottle or a good glass of wine just to deaden the sufferings. Oh no. He would drink the cup of the wrath, the bitterness of God against sin fully. And he drank that cup dry. He left none of it for us. And that's what I get out of that picture. It's a beautiful picture. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His lips. You know what the book of Psalms says? Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry. The beautiful picture of lips is a beautiful picture of the Lord who loves his people, who gives himself to his people, who fellowships with his people. And I mentioned earlier about that when I mentioned my lips because I was thinking about the leper. The leper, back in the Old Testament, was to announce himself wherever he went, unclean, unclean. And the way he did it, he would put his hand over his top lip. You know, unfortunately, there is a terrible disease in human nature and it's called sin. And it's caused this great aggravation between a holy God and man, his creation. And we've been separated from a thrice holy God. And now the picture of us, our throats are an open sepulcher. Our tongue is filled with deceit. And our lips are like apps of poison, which is a picture of a, a snake coiled, ready in a position to bite and to send its deadly venom into someone. And so that's the picture that we have of the lips of mankind. But his lips are altogether beautiful, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. Do you smell it this morning? Can you smell the sweetness of everlasting life? Oh, there's so much more here that we could go on, but I better stop here with hands, legs, and so on. But what a beautiful picture, just to give you a little foretaste of what you can read of in the Bible. But we close with this thought, and it's a very important thought. What are we going to do with this kind of knowledge? Is the Lord set before you here in the vineyard? There in that text in the 8th chapter in verse 12, it mentions Solomon and his vineyards and, his, and then mentions the keepers who receive, and of course the mention of 200 is mentioned. In other words, with all the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ as we describe today, and as the Bible pictures it, in what little way, in what little thimble that we can possibly present before you, yet he brings us into his banqueting house of love, and he shares with us in such, such a way that we can enjoy the fruit of it, that we can enjoy the participation of it. That's what it means when he refers to that we receive as keepers, the 200. In other words, we receive double honor. 
Not only in the study of it and the hearing of it. You know, I just pray to God that whenever we come before you, that not only is the message blessed, but also the hearers. And so that together we form a, a common vital union that we're together in this thing, in this vineyard, and we reap the benefits. And do you know that where a church fails, you know, there's a lot of things why churches fail. In fact, there's a lot of nails that go in the top of a coffin before it's buried. But one of those nails, very easy, when you neither receive nothing from the Lord or you give nothing back, that's one of those nails. When you have a church that doesn't feed on the vine, doesn't receive nothing, or nothing is returned, you got one nail in that coffin to kill that church. And you say, well, Brother Steve, I, I'm pretty busy. Well, we're all are busy in this time world in which we live. You know, we live in that very unique period of time in which men run to and fro. Knowledge shall increase. Daniel forecasted it. He had no idea. But you know what? It's just like the brother prayed. Brother James, he prayed, we, have, we serve a risen Savior. That he's alive, he makes intercession on behalf of his people. There's no pla- we, can behind, we can be behind the wheel of a car and we can pray. We can meditate. Why, with all the gadgets that we have today, I can listen to sermons online. I can hear a message going down the road. There's no excuse. Don't tell me you're too busy today. Because we have afforded us the resources of hearing and meditating upon the Word of God. What I'm trying to say is this. Feed, feed in the garden of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you this morning. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 1030 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.